Hey everyone, how's it going? Welcome back to Citywide Blackout. We bring you the best creators from around the world. And I'm your host, Max Bowen. Ethan Seitzer was only nine years old when he passed away, but in that short time, he impacted countless lives, whether through his easygoing nature, the way he accepted people, or his unique artwork and poetry. Ethan brought so much to the world, all of which is chronicled in The Fun Master, written by his father, Jeff Seitzer. In the book, Jeff talks about parenting a child with special needs while dealing with his own medical issues. He holds nothing back, talking about Ethan's passing, the decision to write this book, and how the experience helped him cope with the grief. Jeff shares what his life was like prior to being a parent and what he expected it to be, and how very different it turned out. This is going to be a very personal, but also a very powerful story about a wonderful young man, unfortunately really taken away from us far too soon. Uh, author Jeff Seitzer joins us for his recently released memoir, The Fun Master. Jeff, welcome to the show, and thank you so much for being here to talk to us. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you. All right. So to, to begin things, could you just kind of walk us through the story behind this book? Yeah, I was kind of a self-centered, self-involved academic uh, when my wife was pregnant. And you know, I assumed I really wouldn't be that involved in childcare um, when my child was born. And he was born with several very serious internal organ defects, which was a complete surprise to everyone. And I had this special moment in the hospital with him because my wife stayed at the maternity hospital. And it was kind of shocking to me because I'd never really been in charge before, you know, and I mostly just wanted to shirk responsibility and focus on what I wanted to do. And here I was, I'd have to listen, answer questions. And I was really kind of a little bit terrified uh, about the whole situation. And he, we had this moment right before his first major surgery where I had been kind of did his, his little hand wrapper on my finger, and I was stroking his neck, and I was speaking to him about, of all things, Hegel's philosophy of right, which is the only thing on my mind at the time. It was kind of weird, but he, you know, he was very calm. And then I went off for a bathroom break, and he just kind of lost it. You know, he was very upset, and and they couldn't continue this test they were doing while uh, I was gone. So I came back and resumed all that, and he really calmed down. And the doctor kind of thanked me for calming him down. And I was kind of astonished. And I felt it's the strangest thing perhaps to think this, but I really believe that he chose me to take care of him, uh, which at the time I thought was a terrible HR choice on his part, uh, because I was really not well suited to take care of another person. Cause I spent all my time taking care of myself. Uh, but I did end up staying home with him and it was a transformative experience because I really had to learn to care for another person more than myself. And, you know, that was a big change for me, and it kind of brought me happiness. I learned to live entirely differently uh, during that time, and uh, I'm grateful for the experience. Obviously, I, you know, it's terrible that he was taken from us in a tragic accident. After he recovered and thrived and was this amazing kid, um, that was unfortunate, but I'm grateful to have had that time because it did help me become a different person, really, uh, and, and finally become a more complete person. And I'm really happy with that. Definitely. Now, from what I've read about about Ethan, he seems like a really, really amazing child. He very dedicated to the arts. He uh, he composed piano. He wrote poetry. He did he did artwork. Uh, I'm just kind of curious what life with him um, was like. Well, the thing is, we are really not tiger parents at all. You know, our favorite thing to do is to sit on the front porch steps and and talk to people. But he had interests. 
And he would just kind of, his mind would go. And, you know, if he had people around, friends, he'd be completely engaged with them. Uh, but if they weren't there, he'd be down like building something in Legos or doing a painting or writing a story. And so he was just always really engaged in the moment uh, and really seemed to live quite comfortably like that, you know. And uh, it was really open to all sorts of people. And even when people had been mean to him, and it wasn't like he didn't, he was naive or, you know, wanted to gain their, uh, you know, affection. But he would like find a way to really get along with almost everyone in almost any circumstance. And so he's kind of a, a really lovely presence. You know, you just felt while you're around him, like the, this will sound strange, but the vibrational level just changed, you know, because he was very calm and enthusiastic and in the moment and engaged in conversation and then, you know, off doing his interests. You know, it was kind of really unusual. I'm really curious about why you want to share the story of Ethan's life in this book. I mean, did something inspire you to think, yes, I want to write this down and tell everyone? Well, there's two reasons. Uh, one, um, you know, Ethan drowned. We were swimming together in Lake Michigan, and uh, I was with him at the time. And according to witnesses, you know, we both went underwater and were underwater for several minutes, right? And he didn't come up, and I did. And uh, we were sinking together. I was looking up at the big disk of sun on the surface of the water and looked down at him and his beautiful hair was flowing. The light was coming through the water and I was certain we were going to die because we, you know, I couldn't move my arms and legs anymore and we were just sinking together. And my final thought before blacking out was I won't be able to tell his story, um, which is kind of an unusual final thought on many levels. But one is that I wasn't planning to tell his story uh, when he was born you know, I have all these great conversations with my mother-in-law. It was very supportive of me. We shared a lot of laughs and, about, you know, my parenting misadventures and adventures. And she said, you know, really, you should keep a notebook and then one day maybe write these stories down and tell them. So I kept a notebook and, you know, it was really kind of a nice engagement for me. I really kind of enjoyed it. But I decided pretty early on that I wouldn't publish any stories about my time with him because, as he put it one day, I don't really like to be the main character. Other people do, but I don't. So I thought he really would be kind of embarrassed if I did it. So, but I kept keeping the notebook, um, keeping notes for a couple of reasons. One, it was, a, you know, I, I wanted to remember everything, uh, but also because uh, it gave me something to do. I was like the only guy in my milieu. I was always in a sea of women, and it was kind of awkward. It was kind of like being at a at a nude beach. You didn't know what to do with your eyes, you know, <laughs> not making eye contact often. So I would, I would write in my notebook. You know, it kind of would pass the time. And so uh, here I am, you know, he dies and I have that final thought and I have 4,000 pages of notes, right? Mm -hmm. So, but the real reason is, the, the other reason is that I felt like I learned so much from him and, and so many kids like him because I myself was a patient at Children's Hospital, the same hospital he was treated at in the early 60s for um, the after effects of encephalitis, which kind of stayed with me my whole life. And, and then I worked as a volunteer in the hospital there for a long time. And I was always so impressed with these kids who had these extraordinary health challenges, you know, because they just never were bitter or, you know, angry. And they just seized every moment. And I remember once I was, I was working as a volunteer and I got on this elevator and there were these two girls here about 10 years old and they had their you know, their heads had been shaved and they had zipper car scars down their heads. They'd obviously had 
you know, very serious surgeries. And, and they were just giggling and talking and sharing secrets and betting their eyes at me as like, you know, 10-year-old kids do. And I thought, that is so inspiring to me, right? I mean, you know, they have so many reasons to probably be angry at life, but they aren't going to waste that moment, right? Being angry. And that was that was really helpful for me because I, you know, I had some bitterness in my life. The encephalitis left me with all sorts of severe residual effects. And then, you know, later, sometime later, I, when I was my, in my teens, I was diagnosed with a severe degenerative condition. I started wearing braces on my legs, which turned out to be a mistake. It's <laughs> just terrible to learn after you've gone through that. It changed my outlook, you know, and turn away from bitterness and anger and, you know, wondering why things aren't quite the way you'd like it. And, and, and you know, for them, I mean, for Ethan, certainly, it was almost kind of an instinct. It's like you didn't really have to think about it. But I had to work at it. But working at it kind of helped me turn away from that. And, you know, I, I still struggle with it a little bit, you know, toward edging toward negativity sometimes. But I'm much better at keeping it bay, at bay. And I think their examples really helped me. And I thought, portraying that in the story, you know, all these everyday events and how he grappled with his own condition and still lived fully might inspire other people to um, follow the path that I did. So, You talked earlier about how you became a better person. Is this kind of what you mean? Well, yeah. I mean, first of all, I started to think, you know, when I, with the encephalitis, the residual effects were really severe. Like I, right, I'm 64 now and I have double the normal uh, B12 levels. So my energy levels are still extremely high. But when I was a kid or in my 20s or my 40s, I was just exploding with energy, which really made life kind of hard. And then I had these wild mood swings, you know, and I was really prone to anger, all sorts of residual effects. And so I developed a lot of mental and physical disciplines to deal with these, you know, and then I got the degenerative condition and then I folded that in there. So I had this kind of all-encompassing self-care regimen that helped me cope, you know, and I achieved quite a bit and, you know, found you know, a fair amount of happiness. I kind of enjoyed myself a lot, uh, but, you know, it required like all my time. Uh, so when I took over Ethan's care, you know, his medical needs, which took priority, obviously, you know, pushed mine aside. And so I had to learn to live, you know, entirely differently. And it was a real struggle at first. Uh, but, you know, I did learn that I could, you know, manage my problems, you know, more economically. Uh, and I began to think of other people's needs before my own. And it became like an instinct today. You know, it's every time something comes up, I rarely think about what I want to do. I always think of how it will work for my daughter and my wife and, you know, other family members and friends. And uh, that's kind of a big change. And it, it it's really a nice thing because I also teach philosophy of happiness in college. And, you know, the oldest happiness thinkers like Aristotle is kind of one of the premier theorists of happiness, you know, looking away from yourself and being involved in community and, you know, putting other people's needs before your own is, is kind of a key to happiness. Uh, but I found that out kind of the hard way, not by reading, but by actually experiencing it. And so it's kind of, um, you know, it's like a big surprise, like, wow, who knew, you know, I thought that looking, tending after myself was the key to happiness, but it's really not. Yeah. I can see how that can happen, though, because we get so wrapped up in our own lives. And as you mentioned before, you were dealing with all your own like medical issues. Was it hard, though, to kind of shift gears and say, OK, it's not all about me anymore. I've got to focus on this child now. Oh, it was extremely hard. Uh, it was very difficult. And, uh, you know, it was kind of you know, a little bit messy. But, 
I really, you know, it was something that I just had to do. I, I had no choice. For example, when he was, I took over his care very shortly after I took over his care, a uh, physical therapist came and he would tend to just put his arms out to the side. And she pointed out, and, and this is terrible for development because you're supposed to put your, you get the child's arms to the, uh, the midline for mutual fingering, they say. So this helps their brains develop. Uh, and he would just have his toys in like one hand and look out at them from the side. And so she said I had to hold him in this awkward position like all his waking hours. So in addition to his incredible medical care, we were just sitting together, you know, in, in whatever spare time we had. And that for me was really just torturous. Uh, but he kind of helped me with it. He just had this one moment where I was really in despair about this right after the physical therapist left. And like, I just noticed he I held this toy up over his shoulder, like handing it to me, handing it to me saying, you know, dad, it's going to be okay. Right? <laughs> this kid's like four months old, you know, but, uh, so it was, it was a very hard adjustment, but it was something, it was kind of like I had no choice, you know, and uh, developed, had to develop different behavior patterns and, and outlooks um, by necessity, really. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to go back a bit to the writing process for the book. You know, as you mentioned, you had just pages and pages of notes. When time came to actually write the book, though, did you find yourself not wanting to share quite so much about everything you went through? Well... Yeah, I, you know, the thing is, um, I don't know, I, I decided very early on that it would not be um, a medical narrative, right? The, the, the medical uh, discussion would be held to a minimum to frame the development of the relationship. Uh, so that helped a little bit because uh, a lot of that might be private. I also made the decision not to talk much about other parents. You know, they could be kind of challenging, uh, but I thought it would be, you know, give the book a different tone and you know you might you don't want to harm other people by revealing things about them um and so i wanted to to write a book that showed me with all my warts but kind of displayed the spirit that he had you know so it'd be a little bit more you know joyful and hopeful even amid even amidst difficult times and struggles um so that kind of you know helped me focus the material quite a bit you know and, and choose stories which illustrated how our relationship developed amidst these challenges, but also just displayed how much fun life was. We just had so much fun. I mean, as a stay-at-home dad, I, I wasn't part of mom's networks, and I thought, well, what I need to do is make our house a center of fun. So there were just kids here all the time, you know, and all sorts of things going on, and it was really exciting. You know, it was just a very joyful time in the midst of all these struggles. Um, so I just I decided I wanted to make it kind of a hopeful book, um, and so that helped me limit uh, a lot of things that might have been, you know, more negative and, you know, and, and would create kind of a, you know, bad feelings among people. Mm-hmm. How about feedback? Did you wind up uh, sharing this with other people prior to the book's publication? Oh, certainly. Yeah, a lot of people read it. Uh, I, well, I always had anybody who appeared in the book, I would have them uh, read it. And let them let me know how they felt about it, and, and you know, a couple of times, I, there are things I had to leave out, um, and I was fine with that. Um, you know, I find there's so many stories that I was able to find something else that really, you know, moved the story along in the way that I wanted to. Uh, but that was important to me. I wanted not to harm anyone because you know, Ethan would never intentionally harm anyone ever. Um, 
And, uh, you know, I wanted to kind of maintain that commitment to uh, kindness that he always had. So that took a little bit of time and effort, you know, to insult all these different people. Uh, but it was a, it was nice, too, because we remembered that time together and the great experiences we had, which helped kind of get over it. Well, I, I've never gotten over his loss, but it helped me kind of bear it, really, because I didn't bear it alone. A lot of people were with us in this, you know, uh, after he died. Yeah. Very grateful for that. I've often heard about about how people who write about their own trauma, they find it's a healing thing. Writing this book, though, especially when you came to the points of Ethan's struggles and his and his passing, though, how did you sort of get over those hurdles? Uh, well, yeah, one reason why it took me so long to write the book is that it was so hard to do that. Well, while I was writing about our time together, it was kind of a form of channeling, really. It was like we were re-experiencing it. You know, he kind of came alive. I would hear he and his friends talking, uh, which sounds kind of weird. Right? I mean, I should be seeing a psychiatrist, but but it was really like, he, you know, it was a form of channeling, which was great. And that kind of really kept me alive, basically. Uh, but when it came to writing about his death, that was so difficult. Initially, for example, I the final chapter was a neo-Greek tragedy, <laughs> which uh, I thought was well done, but was obviously a bit of avoidance behavior. Uh, so I finally set to writing about that last day, and it took me a very, very long time. I mean, I would write a, a phrase, and I would just collapse and heap crying. Uh, and uh, and still to this day, when I read it, I, you know, I get teary-eyed. But having gone over it so many times uh, was was helpful in a way. I mean, putting it down on paper, you know, did did help me. I never I never get over it, but. Uh, but it has, you know, I can now talk about it. I can talk about it with people without uh, breaking down. And uh, that's, that's a step forward because the fact is life doesn't uh, stop for you. It keeps going. And we had a little girl. She was three and a half when he died. And I, I took care of her, too. And, you know, I couldn't just turn away from her. You know, people said to us that when they had a friend who was one friend said that she had a friend whose son died and she didn't leave the house for a year. We thought, well, that's not an option. You know, we have to take care of this little girl. So uh, it did it did help, you know, finally facing it. And, and now it's, for example, I'm working with a water safety group, which really I couldn't have done before because I just couldn't face his death mm-hmm. for many years. And even now, like they're making a little film about his drowning. And, you know, it was just so hard to talk about because I hadn't really done that on film before. Right. I just talked about it with friends. and you know, written it in the book. And so each, each thing you, each way you encounter it is a new hurdle, but it does help you. It it toughens you up. It's kind of like, you know, you develop scar tissue and uh, whereas before you were without skin. And so I think I have built up a lot of scar tissue now, which protects me. I feel like when, when this kind of like loss happens, you got to face it head on as cliche as, as, as that may sound, you know, running from it just doesn't, it doesn't help you in the long run. Yeah, people have different styles of grief, and sometimes it breaks people up. You know, some people just want to deny it. You know, they'll go and remove all the photographs, and they don't want to talk about it, and they throw themselves into some new project, which completely occupies them. And and for me, you know, we had a different style of grief. We, as you put it, we went head into it, head you know, right into the headwind, and we had a lot of people with us, and you know, we just cried and you know shared stories for a very long time. And fortunately, both my wife and I were like, had the same idea. 
so we weren't split apart by our styles of grieving. But many people are. But I look at you know other people. I don't. There's no judgment for me because they they deal it in a different way. Like some people in these water, the water safety group that I'm working with now, they they just went right into advocating water safety. And I don't think that they're a lesser person because of that. You know, I think it's just their way of handling the grief. Uh, but uh, but I kind of came to see grief as really kind of a disability. You know, you're you'll never be the way you were before. You know, the world has been changed for you, and you kind of learn to live with the disability. But it's always there, and recognizing the disability is kind of liberating, because a lot of people get upset with themselves about, well, you know. Why am I still so despondent and why am I still so sad? I need to get out there. And, you know, it's like, well, you have this kind of hole there that you won't be able to fill. Um, and that's liberating for other people when I tell them that. I, when I have friends whose kids have died, I just walk right up to them and tell them, well, you're disabled now. And they, they appreciate that. They're like, thank you. Uh, because it takes, it relieves them a little bit of the burden of being just like everybody else, you know, hasn't experienced that loss. So, mm-hmm. um, I'm curious as to where the title came from. Well, that's what his friends called him, the Fun Master. Oh, really? Uh, wow. Yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, I'm definitely not the title character. I'm just kind of a guy in the background rearranging things. Uh, some people who knew us said that you know there's a, there's an ambiguity there because we were kind of a team. You know, like he would we would work together to make things kind of fun, like around our house and outings, et cetera. But he wasn't like an A-type personality that would walk in a room and take over a room, you know? He was more kind of someone who come in and he'd feel how things are working, you know? And he would kind of either go with the flow or come up with an idea if things weren't working. And, you know, he just... And he had this instinctive sense. I, got, I was always fascinated watching him because, like, you know, everybody has something positive in them, right, That that you can build upon. Like, his... He had an instinctive ability to establish an enthusiastic connection with someone. And like I was always fascinated by how he could identify this, but not just identify it, but like go with it, even with people who'd been kind of mean to him, because uh, he wanted that moment to be really positive. And that's that's the way he was the fun master. You'd leave him feeling better and had a better time being around him. Mm-hmm. And uh it's it's kind of it was a remarkable quality, really. Oh, definitely. Now, when it came to writing the book, were you concerned with kind of portraying it in a certain way so as to convey a message or a moral? Well, I, you know, I kind of struggled a little bit with, you know, editors at various times because, you know, memoirs oftentimes have retrospective commentary from your current vantage point and, you know, and they kind of make an explicit point. And I decided to write it much like a novel, really, uh, where I wouldn't really tell people what I thought the message was or try and elaborate on it philosophically. I mean, I have a, you know, a PhD from the University of Chicago and I'm a philosopher, but, but I didn't want to do that. I wanted to kind of let people feel it, you know, to get in scenes and, and, you know, see the action develop. And I thought they could get the message from that, you know, and I do have commentary in there about myself and how I'm changing in the moment, right. To look back at the way I was before. Um, but, I really didn't want to be, you know, heavy-handed about it. Uh, I was somewhat concerned too because I know from my experience with special needs, like uh, even my own, for example, it's this degenerative condition I have. You know, my symptoms are very mild, which puts me separates me a little bit from other people with my condition. 
And I'm always worried about, you know, speaking to people as an outsider and, you know, trying to instruct them. I thought that would actually be counterproductive. Um, you know, they might resent me for trying to tell them about, you know, how they should think and, you know, what's the best way to do things. Uh, and uh, so I kind of decided against that and just focus upon the action and the scenes and make the scenes vivid. And so people could really kind of feel like they were there. Uh, and then they would kind of, I think, get the message. And, and most people, you know, have, I guess I shouldn't say most people, but many have told me that they do. Uh, and I hope that's true because uh, that was my intention. Was it difficult to be done with this, to say no more tweaks, no more editing, it's ready to go? Uh, <laughs> well, I think you have to, you know, when you have a, an idea about what the book will be like, um, you know, and the sort of book that you want to write. Um, you know, it's, you know, for me, it was funny because when I first started, uh, I came, you know, I wrote the draft on my own. I didn't have any luck. I didn't go to workshops or anything like that because I was a, a scholar before. And so I'm essentially writing a novel. Uh, it's a memoir, but it's kind of written, you know, like a novel. And uh, so then I started taking workshops and courses and, you know, people there would tell me that teachers would tell me that I was almost too eager to take feedback and, and incorporate it into what I was doing. Uh, but then later, when I was actually, a book was being prepared to be published, you know, people thought that I, you know, resisted too much to change things. But I think I got it to a point where I, I, I thought, well, I really want to try this. You know, and I, I didn't want to think too much about what would make it popular. Uh, I wanted to make it, you know, speak to people in a certain way. Uh, and I was willing to risk it not being more, you know, more like contemporary works. Uh, you know, I did. I don't include much research, for example, which is a new contemporary thing in memoirs. And I've talked already about the retrospective commentary. There were just decisions that I made about how to do it. And I thought, I'm just going to stick to it because I don't know. I had a strong feeling about it. And uh, I, I, I hope that, you know, it, it works for people. Oh, of course. I like to go back a little bit to just being a parent. Uh, as we mm -hmm. said, wasn't on your plan. You thought it was gonna it was gonna be very different. What was it like for you just being being like the dad, you know, being like the stay at home father and and having to take on all these new responsibilities when you already had all these other things you were doing? Well, you know, one advantage I had in that is that you know managing all of my conditions. Um, may be pretty adaptable. And, uh, you know, I could organize my day in different ways when different things came up. And that was kind of a nice skill to have taking care of someone like Ethan because he had all of these health challenges. And I was I got pretty good at balancing them and managing them such that we could still get out and do stuff. You know, like we were at the hospital, have an appointment, and, you know, a little bit of time after the before the appointment, and we'd we'd be walking around down like the basement of the hospital, exploring and doing things. So it was kind of it 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 fulfilled my need for adventure. Uh, you know, when I was had encephalitis as a kid, I'm from Nebraska, Omaha, Nebraska, and my mom and I went off to Chicago for the better part of two years, uh, and it was so exciting. You know, I wasn't in school, which was great, and I was just like going around on trains. You know, and I did go to the hospital, and everybody was excited to see me. So I got a kind of a 
taste for stimulation. I needed a lot of stimulation. And, you know, I kind of got that uh, taking care of Ethan because of how difficult his care was. It was always very challenging and stimulating trying to figure out how to still have fun uh, while you're doing, you're taking care of all of these medical needs. Uh, so it really kind of spoke to me. I, 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 I kind of thought it was a really interesting challenge uh, and really occupied me fully. Um, I was really enjoyed it. How about the notion of just being like a stay-at-home father? I think you mentioned before that you were kind of just one in a sea of stay-at-home moms. Yeah. Yeah, it was, you know, it was interesting because when I started, I knew that, um, you know, I, I, I knew that I probably would not be fully part of things. I mean, one reason is that I was a guy, right? And, you know, the women have this in common. Many of them would produce a child and having watched my wife go through pregnancy and, and give birth, it's like, oh, my God, what an experience. And they shared that, you know, and I didn't. Um, and I also felt a little bit different because I, you know, I had been a graduate student at the University of Chicago. I had all these philosophical interests that people didn't share, really. You know, the two years before Ethan was born, we lived in London, and my wife worked at the law firm. And, you know, we'd have these, you know, these interesting people, and we do things with them. But it was clear that, like, I wasn't really on the same page with them. So when I went into being a stay-at-home dad, I, I thought, well, I'm probably not going to be really great friends with a lot of the people that I know. But we can be good colleagues, mm-hmm. and that's what I focused on. And it was kind of liberating in a way because you know some I would talk to some moms and they would be so put out because they were hurt that they weren't friends with certain people, right? They felt left out. Uh, whereas my outlook was more, I would be more hurt if my Ethan were not included, right? Because <laughs> I knew that I wouldn't be fully part of it, you know. And so people would say that they were offended if they. They went to pick up their kid, and the person didn't invite them inside, you know, and have coffee or whatever. Whereas for me, it's like, well, this is great because he had his play date, and, you know, uh, I'm just happy to pick him up. So, you know, it really didn't affect me that much being alone. But I did have to work pretty hard to put people at ease in order to set up play dates, particularly early on. I mean, you'd have to go, you know, to each other's houses when they were really young, and that would kind of ruffle some feathers at home. And so I tried to develop ways to bring the kids together. That wasn't, you know, threatening, you know, the, the parents, et cetera, the, the spouses. And uh, so that was not easy. You know, it took, it took a lot of effort, but I really never felt bad about it. You know, I know some people, they might feel excluded if they weren't part of like, the social network of moms that they wanted to be a part of. And, and that never really affected me that much because I never really expected to be part of that. You know, it was more of a practical problem for me than like my self-worth involved in that. It definitely sounds like there was all these shifts and changes in your life. And of course that's the case with, I think anyone who, who was a parent, but you especially the you ver the you before this and then the you after this. Do you think that you're, that you're all this, the same person as you were before? Well, I I think I have a certain core certain core elements that have remained the same. You know, I have like a a sturdy spirit that I got from my mom. Um, I'm not prone to depression, which is a good thing. I think all the energy from encephalitis helps me with that. I throw myself into things, 
um, and that's kind of a positive thing. Um, and I think ultimately, I'm not like a, a you know a mean person. I don't like to harm people. Uh, that's remained the same. Um, so there's certain things that are still constant. But uh, you are you're exactly right. My life has been like a, a fish flopping on the dock. I mean, even my degenerative condition. I went from believing I had a severe condition that would probably cripple me and put me in a wheelchair uh, to being told, told by a neurologist when I was 27 that he didn't even think I had the condition. And then later I learned through a blood test that had only just been developed shortly before then that I actually have the severe form, right? But that it's a mild case and they don't know why. And then I learned that uh, my encephalitis was probably caused by my degenerative condition, which is really bizarre. So there's been a lot of changes, you know, and weight adjusting to alternate futures, you know. At first you think you're going to be in a wheelchair, and then, well, no, I don't even have it. And then, you know, no, I do have it. That's that, what's that mean? And, you know, back and forth and back and forth because you, the fear of the future can be pretty overpowering when you think you have, like, some condition that is going to get worse, seriously worse. Uh, and then go back and forth on that. It was really, it's really kind of hard to take at times, I have to say. Mm-hmm. So how are you doing these days? Yeah, I'm doing really well. Uh, you know, it's been, Ethan's been gone for about 12 years and, uh, you know, we, you know, we function very well now. And our daughter, of course, has been doing super well. She's in a great school uh, and uh, thriving. And, you know, you I've gotten to be to the point where I really am happy when other people are doing well, mm. you know, and, uh, even, even with my golf buddies, I like, you know, I, I'm happy when they're playing better, uh, even if they're beating me, you know, and so that <laughs> I feel really great right now, you know, because everyone's doing quite well that I know. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, obviously we have our challenges and, you know, there's all sorts of things that come up, but I don't know. I feel confident. In life, I don't have any kind of fear or anxiety. That's one thing that I had after stuff last a lot of anxiety, and I think I think I don't really experience anxiety at all anymore. And having had it, I'm full of sympathy for people who struggle with it, and I'm just so grateful that I don't now. Mm-hmm. I know that Ethan was only with us for a little while, but do you think he has some kind of legacy? Well, I think so. I mean, very early on people from the school teachers and other students reported that, you know, people in the school the last few years in his little primary grade school here around the corner were really super kind to each other. You know, and I think he kind of had an influence on them because he was so kind to everyone. And I do know that, you know, a lot of people talk about him and, you know, he kind of was like a kind of an inspiration to them. Um, his demeanor and sense of fun and his kindness. Um, and, you know, maybe through the book, uh, he'll have a little bit of a legacy too, um, because he did have a very distinctive quality, um, which we need more of really, you know, we could do, we could use more fun masters in the world right now. We certainly could. Is there another book? Do you think you might do another one? Well, (laughs) the first draft of the book, uh, was 146,000 words. So there's plenty of more stories, but 
I think I'd like to write a book about um, spiritual paths. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just watching him, like, I'd always felt like, you know, it wouldn't be a religious book, like a narrowly religious book, but I always felt like he was older than me. And I started to kind of believe in reincarnation, as the, the book wouldn't be about that. But I just thought he came to this world different. And so I started to think about spiritual paths. And, you know, several years after he died, I started teaching world religions just to kind of like explore these things. And so I'd like to write a book that is about a spiritual path that kind of embraces science and philosophy um, and is focused on, you know, kind of making people happy. Uh, kind of a, not, not an alternative to organized religions. They would draw from certain aspect of religion, the, the spiritual paths, but just exploring that idea, um, I, I think, as a kind of a philosophical work, kind of returning to my, to my roots, really. Mm-hmm. But it would be for a general audience. I think one great thing about writing something like a memoir and getting away from scholarship is that you, you know, learn to write differently. And I think there's real, a real market and need uh, for books like that, you know, and have a little bit of depth, uh, but kind of speak to a general audience uh, in a helpful way. And that's what I'm hoping to do. Okay. Now, I know this book would obviously have a strong impact on parents, but what about folks without kids? What kind of impact do you think it has on them? Uh, yeah, that's true. Well, the thing about the book is that I think the real underlying theme is that, you know, we're all, life gives everyone a little bit too much to handle, right? And, you know, you could transport this into someone else's life without kids, where they have, you know, a little bit too much uh, to grapple with. And, you know, this perhaps is a, might inspire them because, you know, if I could get through this and become a different person, you know, they probably could too, whatever their challenges are. Um, so it has this more general theme, I think. Uh, obviously, it speaks to parents very more powerfully, uh, but it is really about uh, self-overcoming, and that's something that you know everyone you know could benefit from. Well, Jeff, thank you so much for speaking to me. I really appreciate this. And for the folks at home, you visit Jeffrey Seitzer, S-E-I-T-Z-E-R dot com for more information. Get your copy of the book. And whoever reads this, I really hope it helps you. Just hope it helps in some way. Jeff, thanks again. This has been a a real pleasure talking to you. Well, thank you for having me. It was very delightful. I I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Hey, this is singer-songwriter and mental health advocate Stephanie Mathias. Be sure to check out my single Hero Side, available on all platforms now, and listen to Citywide Blackout, your home for the best indie artists. And with that, it's time to bring this episode to a close. You can follow the show on Facebook under Citywide Blackout and Twitter and Instagram under Citywide Max. You can reach me at citywidemax at yahoo.com and check the show out wherever you find your favorite podcasts, as well as every Saturday at 10 p.m. on Boston Free Radio. That's all for now, and I'll see you next time.